2: Hey, Seth, come look at this fridge.
3: Uh, hang on, Molly. I'm trying to get some coffee.
2: You know, I'm just trying to put my lunch in here, and this office refrigerator is always crammed with stuff, and... Wait,
3: wait, wait. wait. Let me just see this. Should this stuff even be in here? What is this stuff?
2: So look at this. So this yogurt...
3: Whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa.
2: Okay, Best Buy... Okay, this is is two months ago. Yeah, but that's only when
3: it was Best Buy. It doesn't mean that it isn't any good. Okay.
2: I mean, I know this is, like, other people's food and stuff, but I really think people should toss this stuff out. What's that?
3: Well, these are just sliced cucumbers here. Cucumbers don't go bad. These things don't have any expiration date, as far as I can tell.
2: They must go bad at some point. Besides, those are starting to get kind of wet. That's when they start to get
3: slimy. All right. What about these? Doesn't that look like something that's old? old? Yeah. Well, it looks like a collection of nematodes.
2: (laughs) Okay. I think it's really old rice.
3: Yeah. It's got peas in it, too. I think they're peas. They may just be giant colonies of green bacteria.
2: See what's in that styrofoam thing in the back. Really? Do I have to?
3: Wait a minute. Ugh. Ugh. Oh, man. This styrofoam is so old, it predates the invention of styrofoam. Oh, (laughs) it looks like spare ribs, or it was spare ribs, but they're all fuzzy now.
2: That is green fuzz. That is not supposed to be on that food, is it?
3: Yeah, no, it looks like what hangs from the rearview mirror of my car.
2: Yeah, that's not Mama's special sauce on those spare ribs.
3: (laughs) I wouldn't eat this. In fact, I wouldn't feed this to anything that was alive, because it might cease to be.
2: I might feed it to something that was dead. It might bring it back to life. <laughs> well, this is alarming. We need an expert or someone to explain what kind of experimental food chemistry is going on in this fridge. You know what? I'm going to call Martin Bucknavage.
3: He works on food safety. That's right. Making sure your watermelon doesn't run with scissors or other sharp objects.
4: Hello, this is Martin Bucknavich.
3: Here, Seth. You talk to him. Oh, oh. Hi, this is Seth Shostak. Can I run a rib question by you, Martin? Oh, sure. Okay, great. Well, we're rummaging through our office refrigerator here, and I opened this styrofoam container and came face-to-face with a helping of cooked short ribs covered in soft green fur. What is that stuff?
4: (laughs) It's certainly not a coat. It's actually mold that's growing on the product. I wouldn't suggest you eat it.
3: (laughs) It seemed to have a white border around the outside. Is that also mold?
4: Yeah, that's mold. different types of mold will give different looks. They'll have different colors. They'll have different borders. At some point, they'll start to turn a little bit of black on the outside as they start to form spores. And at that point, you know, you're in trouble because once those spores get released, they're all over your refrigerator. I suggest you closing that container back up and throwing those ribs in the garbage before that
3: happens. How old would you guess these ribs are, given the appearance (laughs) of this fuzz? Oh,
4: I'd have to say at least four or five days old, at least.
3: My goodness. Well, where did the fur come from? I mean, how did these things get in there? Once the product is cooked, it's normally free of any types
4: of mold or spoilage bacteria. But as you open it up, there's mold spores that are going to be in the air. And as that product sits in the refrigerator, especially over an extended period of time, you're going to start to see colonies of mold grow on those food products.
3: So is that what's happening when food spoils, I mean, it's just the growth of these uh, these contaminants.
4: Yeah, oftentimes product coming to the end of what we'll call the the end of its shelf life can happen for a number of reasons. It could be microbial spoilage, like you're seeing there, either mold or bacteria, or it could be oxidation of a product.
3: That's that's just a chemical reaction, right? I mean, what we saw in the short ribs, of course, that's a living critter.
4: That's a living critter, yes. <laughs> that
3: that that's biology. So there are at least two ways things can go bad.
4: Correct. So you can have what we call microbiological spoilage, which can come from bacteria, yeast, or mold, or you can have chemical degradation of the product. That could be oxidation of the product. You could have moisture loss. You can have nutrient loss, as the product sits it can lose nutrients. You can even have just plain flavor loss. You put a bottle of apple juice on your shelf and you leave it there for a year. It's not going to spoil, but when you open up that container and you drink that apple juice, it won't have much flavor.
3: But not everything spoils or turns bad at the same rate? I mean, fish goes fast, eggs can last for weeks. What determines how quickly things go bad in your fridge?
4: Well, it all comes down to the product itself, the moisture level of the product, the pH of the product. There's a term that we call water activity, which is the available moisture. Some products have more or higher water activity. That means there's more water available. And so those products will tend to spoil faster than a product that that are drier. So if you think about peanut butter, right? peanut butter has a low water activity, low moisture available for microbes to grow, and so that product will last for a long time. And if you compare that to fish, it has a higher water activity and also has nutrients that are available, that product will spoil much faster.
3: So presumably on products where they've stamped an expiration date, mm-hmm. somebody in a lab somewhere, I don't know if it's at the place where they actually make the product or whether it's some government lab, but somebody's decided... Under normal conditions, this is how long this product's going to last in a state that would allow it to be eaten.
4: Somebody makes a determination, and then usually it's the manufacturer that determines what the shelf life of that product is going to be. And they look at it from a historical standpoint. They look at it from a chemical standpoint. They go through and do an analysis and determine, Well, oh, we think this product will last a year. It'll last six months. It'll last five
3: days. It is remarkable to me that some of these things turn very quickly. I mean, sometimes a carton of milk is great on a Wednesday, and by Thursday evening, you know, it's all clotted and unusable. There's nothing magic about that, I suppose. It's just some things turn very quickly?
4: Absolutely. There's nothing magic. All it is is the bacterial levels in that product continue to grow. And even if it's stored at refrigeration temperature, there are certain types of bacteria that will grow in that product, although slow but they'll continue to grow until they hit a threshold where you can start to detect the flavor changes to that product. And once it hits to that point, then it's time to throw the product
3: out. I have to ask, uh, by the Mm -hmm. way, why do apples seem to spoil faster if they've been bruised? What does the bruising do to them?
4: The bruising causes the chemical reaction in the fruit itself. There's certain types of enzymes that are in the cells, and when the apple gets hit, the cells rupture. Those enzymes get released, and then they start to cause a reaction, and they start to deteriorate that fruit faster vegetables can be the same way. Again, if they go through any kind of jarring, it can cause some cellular structure degradation, which can lead to enzyme release and faster degradation of that product.
3: Boy, when I come back from the supermarket, I'm going to put everything into the fridge with tongs. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot, Martin. We might have some other questions for you later. Will you be around? Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now.
2: Well, thanks to Martin Bucknavage at the Department of Food Science at Penn State, we now know to override our impulse to dive into these ribs, and instead, we can throw them out. Ooh.
3: You want some tongs? Throw them out. Yeah, that expiration date is past. but not everything turns green with age. Let's find out why some organisms just don't stick around very long, while other non-biological things, such as a certain high-tech clock being developed, have a shelf life of... Thousands of years. Molly, I'm starting a campaign now for plastic bottles that disintegrate in a couple of days and maybe mayflies that live for hundreds of years.
2: It's big picture science. I'm Molly Bentley.
3: I'm Seth Shosta.
1: Slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just kicking down the cobblestone.
2: Well, there's one expiration date that we're all interested in.
3: We don't like to talk about it, but it's fortunately or maybe unfortunately not stamped on our bottoms the way it is on those yogurts. It's the ultimate limited warranty.
2: The April 15th of existence.
3: The mother of all library due dates.
2: And crawling into the fridge won't help you avoid it. The human expiration date. Humans like food, like those ribs, deteriorate due to a
3: natural aging process. But some scientists are trying to slow that process down.
5: I'm Lenny Garente. I'm the Novartis professor at MIT.
3: In the laboratory for the science of aging, to be exact. Lenny Garente's not working on anti wrinkle face creams or hair restores, although there'd be a lot of money in it, but he's slowing down aging on the molecular level.
2: His lab discovered a gene that regulates aging. It's named the SIR2 gene, the SIR for sirtuin. It's a class of protein.
5: So the current cell by date for
3: humans is.
5: The longest person on record was a French woman named Jean Clermont, and she lived to be 122.
3: That's terrific. Considerably more than a century, which is encouraging.
5: In general, the chances of living to be 100 or more is something like 1 in 10,000.
3: 1
2: in 10,000. Well, look at it this way. That's much better than your odds of winning an Olympic medal, which is about 1 in 650,000.
3: Turns out the median life expectancy for men in the United States is about 77 or 78. And for women, it's about four or five years longer. But that finish line is being extended all the time. There are even some researchers like Aubrey de Grey, whom we've interviewed in the past, who think that aging can be stopped for good. Lenny, where do you fall?
5: You know, I'm a scientist, so I tend to try to minimize speculation and deal with reality as much as possible. And what I can say, based on the science that I know is correct, as of now, we're definitely going to be able to slow down the aging process. We're going to be able to extend the period of healthy, productive living. We will probably push back maximum lifespan as well. But the degree to which we can do that and how rapidly, I think we don't know at this point.
3: But are we talking tens of years? Are we talking centuries? Are we talking millennia?
5: I think we're talking tens of years. One guide is a particular diet that's called calorie restriction, which a lot of these approaches coming out of the laboratory will mimic, so that we can use that as kind of a gauge to what we can expect. And in rodents, where calorie restriction has been studied for a long period of time now, you can get another 50% or so.
3: So instead of living 10 years, they'd live 15 years or whatever.
5: Right, instead of two years, three years in the case of a mouse. So optimistically, we could think about a few decades.
3: That works for rodents, but a lot of things work for rodents. You can cure cancer in rats, but doesn't mean it's going to apply to us. I mean, are you optimistic?
5: Yeah, I think I am. I mean, so we're at the stage now in the science where we think we've put our finger on the pulse of at least one aspect of calorie restriction, how it works. We think we know the genes. We think we know the proteins that they encode so that the past five years or so, there's been a considerable effort to develop drugs, pharmaceuticals, directed at these proteins that will deliver the benefits of calorie restriction without actually having to undergo a Spartan diet.
3: Okay, so you can still go to the local burger outlet, and nonetheless, you reduce the aging process. Can you explain to me, in in sort of simple terms, how restricting your caloric intake would cause you to uh, live longer?
5: We think that calories are sensed by a group of proteins. We have seven of these that are called sirtuins. And what happens is, under low calories, sirtuins are activated in tissues, like the muscle, for example, or the brain. And what these sirtuins do is they promote cell maintenance so that the tissue stays healthier longer. So if we had a way of triggering these proteins with a pharmaceutical, then we could expect to get at least some of the benefits of the low-calorie diet without having to actually restrict calories. And this has been carried out in principle now in rodents. It seems to work. And there are a number of these compounds now that are entering human clinical trials for diseases like diabetes.
3: Any way to sort of foresee what my daily diet might be like if I were on one of these uh, regimens?
5: Well, if you were actually trying to do this by restricting your calories, you might eat just as a rule of thumb. Uh, Imagine what you eat now, okay?
3: Yeah, it's making me hungry.
5: (laughs) Now imagine eating that amount only every other day instead of every day.
3: When you tell this to people at parties, do they say to you that, I'd rather forego the extra two decades and just eat every day? Yes. In in a word. (laughs) (laughs) Because that brings to mind, you know, we we talk about extending lifespan. But on the other hand, I mean, there's another factor here, and that is the quality of that life. And when you're 100 years old, maybe you don't care about another two decades. I, I don't know. I'm not 100 yet. But... I can imagine that there might be much more interest in keeping your lifespan uh, at 80 or 90 or something like that, but making sure that you had the vitality and everything else of a 20-year-old right up to the end, and then you just fall over.
5: I completely agree, and I think more in terms of health span than lifespan. And when I look at the rodents that are calorie-restricted, they look very, very healthy and young to the end. And then, uh, as you say, they just happily march off the cliff.
3: (laughs) Well... I don't imagine that death is something that has evolved as a strategy. I could better imagine that once any organism gets beyond the age of reproduction, there isn't much incentive for evolution to keep you going. So all sorts of things can kill you, and evolution doesn't really care. It's sort of wired into our DNA, but that suggests that there might be multiple causes of our finite lifespans.
5: There is, but here's how I think evolution figures into this. What evolution does care about is reproduction. We don't reproduce you know, the species is finished. And what I think we have here is a situation where these proteins, the sirtuins, can survey the environment, especially the availability of food. And if there's a lot of food, then the winning strategy is to reproduce because then the offspring will have a good environment. You pass your genes on, everybody's happy. If there's scarce food, then it would be advantageous to delay reproduction. And what you would need to do then is to shut down reproductive capacity and put all those resources into maintenance so that you'll be young enough to reproduce later should food become available. So that's where I think the evolutionary aspect of this came in. And that's why we have these proteins, the sirtuins, to think about leveraging now that we know about them to get some of the benefits of calorie restriction without actually undergoing the diet.
3: Okay, you have discovered a gene that controls aging, I mean, is this the way to go? Can we manipulate our DNA in the future and maybe just somehow cure death?
5: Well, you know, it's like any disease, in people it's very difficult to manipulate the DNA, so gene therapy has not worked in humans. So what you do instead is you manipulate the activity of the gene by identifying the product of the gene, in this case sirtuins, knowing what they do, which we've discovered, and figuring out a way to get chemicals as drugs to increase their activity.
3: All right. So it isn't a matter of DNA reengineering; It's a matter of putting in the right substance into your body. Yes. Well, finally, Leonard, I've seen your photo. You look healthy and fit to me. So I'll ask you the question they ask anybody over the age of uh, whatever. <laughs> What's your secret for long life?
5: I think that lifestyle plays into this in a major way. So what I tell people is what you should do is decide what the best body weight is for you, okay? And everybody will have a different uh, reaction to that. Usually it sends you thinking to a a time in in the past, okay? And doing whatever it takes to keep to that body weight. You know, not overeating. It will involve exercise. And, you know, personally, I I weigh myself every day. I'm not fanatical, but I try to, if I see I'm gaining a a pound or two or three or four, I adjust my uh, diet and exercise to maintain body weight. So I think that's really important.
3: What about the effect of red wine? There's been a lot uh, in the papers. Yeah, well, that
5: relates to our work because there's a substance in red wine, a natural product called resveratrol, which has been reported to activate one of the sirtuins, SIRT1. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about whether it really works that way or not, and it's still being resolved in the laboratory. But all the studies that have been done in France on wine say that moderate consumption of red wine is good for you. I drink two glasses a day, and I also, you know, just try to keep things uh, in moderation, not get too stressed out. All right.
3: Well, Lenny Garante, I want to thank you so much for talking with me. And uh, frankly, I'm going to move these onion rings to the side. Give them to Molly.
5: (laughs) Good for you.
2: Biologist Lenny Garante can't guarantee you'll live to be 100, but he's working on it in the Laboratory for the Science of Aging at MIT. I've got all my life to live. I've got
3: all my
0: love to give. I'll
2: survive. I will survive.
0: Hey,
3: hey. Next, one of the shortest-lived creatures on Earth and what may become the longest-lived mechanical device, the short and the long of it on Big Picture Science. All moving down that road towards getting that platinum AARP card. But, you know, let's put things in perspective, because in the grand scheme of things, our pace of aging is leisurely. After all, we're not. Gastrotrix.
2: Now, in our search for a creature that had one of the shortest lifespans, we came across a few contenders. There are fruit flies and mayflies and even some ants. None of these insects stick around for very long. But we were struck by a beautiful photo of an animal, a tiny organism called a gastrotrix.
3: If you only had a handful of days to strut your stuff on Earth like that critter, your childhood would only last for a few hours. And let me tell you, you would never see the end of that kitchen remodel. Do you speak from experience on that? Oh, do I?
2: (laughs) Well, biologist Rick Hochberg studies gastrotricks, and he is a big believer that some of the most interesting and important creatures on Earth are the smallest. But he can't get too attached to his study subjects
3: because they check out pretty quickly. Rick, gastrotrick, their whole... Bunch of gastrotricks, but you know, your average gastrotric, how long can they expect to live?
0: Well, depending on the species, they can live as short as two or three days.
3: My goodness. Is that enough to qualify it as having the dubious honor of maybe of being the shortest lifespan critter that's not a bacterium or something like that?
0: Perhaps. We think that's the case, as far as we know based on current research.
3: Well, describe to me what a gastrotrick is. What does it look like? What you know, if I met one on the street.
0: You'd probably step on it. But these are all very tiny animals, microscopic, maybe as small as a tenth of a millimeter, so very tiny, little worm-like creatures with lots of little cilia, hair-like structures on their belly for moving around in an aquatic environment.
3: I'm told they're also called hairy backs, which sounds like the name of my uncle. Uh, (laughs) Do they really have hair, or are they just sort of little cilia? What what kind of hairs do they have?
0: Well, well, gastrotrich actually means hairy belly. So the hairs are on their belly, and the hair is purely for locomotion. So it's little cilia that constantly beat and propel them around their environment.
3: Okay, and what is their lifestyle? I mean, given that they don't have very long to live, I hope that they at least enjoy the lifespan they have. If you were a gastrotrich, what would your day be like?
0: I think my day would probably consist of eating and making babies, and that's about it.
3: You know, when I was younger, I had a microscope, and I would make what they called a hay infusion. I would throw a bunch of grass into some water, let it sit for a couple of days, and look at it under the microscope. And there were all these things moving around. There's animacules, as they were once called. Would I find gastro or do I have to go someplace special to find these guys?
0: Oh, you can find them virtually anywhere. You can find them in a in hay infusion, but you can also find them in your local backyard in a pond in a temporary pool They have eggs that are highly resistant to drying out, and so they can float around in the air and virtually land anywhere.
3: My goodness, so these guys are all over the place. Now, you study these things. You consider them, I believe, understudied. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, they're not terribly well-known. We know there's about 800 species, but we don't know that much about their biology. We don't know who they're related to. In many cases, we don't even know what they eat. But we know they're everywhere, they're ubiquitous, and they probably have a lot of importance in the ecology of the planet. There are a number of species that live on our beaches and those species are responsible for breaking down maybe some organic stuff that washes up on the beach and causes the beach to stink. So if they weren't there, the beaches would tend to be more stinky than they are. They live their own life and feed and reproduce at will.
3: Okay, but that life could be very, very short, just a couple of days. I mean, a lifespan of 100 hours doesn't sound like much. And I guess by comparison, a fruit fly, which might last for a month or so, Is really a Methuselian creature. (laughs) One thing that uh, I read about these guys is that although they don't have much in the way of longevity, they might make up for it in surprise. They seem to be hermaphrodites. In other words, they're both male and female. Is that true?
0: That's partly true. They're really remarkable. A lot of species will actually start out, as soon as they hatch out of an egg, they're ready for reproduction. And in fact, the first couple of eggs they make themselves are totally asexual. That is, they can make them without copulating with, say, a male. So they're exclusively female. And only after they lay a few eggs do they actually enter into a new phase where they develop both male and female parts, and they're ready for standard kinds of, of reproduction.
3: Well, this hermaphrodism, both sexes in one individual, it doesn't sound like a good idea because you don't mix up uh, the genetic material. You don't uh, evolve this quickly.
0: Surprisingly enough, a large number of species on the planet are, in fact, hermaphroditic. And it's a pretty successful lifestyle. If you are, let's say, a male and you're looking for a female in the environment, one's not there, you're really limited. But if you carry both sex organs, you can encounter another animal of same species with both sex organs and you can copulate. She can act the female, you can act the male, or vice versa.
3: Fair to say that for the gastrotricks, the reason that they're hermaphroditic is because they just don't have time to find the right mate. So they are the right mate.
0: Exactly. You want to increase the odds of you finding a good partner. And again, if you have both sex organs, then every partner is the right
4: partner.
3: Now, with an expiration date of only a couple of days, you really have to be organized to accomplish your life's goals. I mean, no 30-year mortgage. What is this creature's biggest goal in life? What does it have to do to say, you know, I've lived a good life, and it's only been 72 hours, but, you know, I did what I needed to do?
0: All it needs to do is eat its way through life, and make some babies. That's all they want to do, and as soon as they've made some babies, they're very satisfied with their life, and they can expire after that.
3: But looking at this from an evolutionary perspective, I would think that reproducing quickly and then getting out of the way by dying, that might be a good strategy from nature's point of view because, you know, you keep adapting very quickly. Why is it that other creatures don't have very, very short lifetimes?
0: Well, I think in part it's predicated on their body size. A very small animal is prone to being eaten by something all the time. And so what you want to do is reproduce very quickly and carry out all the things you need to do in a very short span before, in fact, you're fed upon by larger animals.
3: How long have these creatures been around, these gastrotricks? Any idea? I mean, are they something of the last 10 million years? Have they been around for hundreds of millions of years?
0: I'd hazard a guess that they've been around since the Cambrians, so maybe around 600 million years.
3: 600 million years. So (laughs) that means there have been hundreds of billions of generations of these guys.
0: Oh, exactly.
3: So they must be pretty good by now. I mean, these guys must be really highly refined. They they must be perfect.
0: Well, they're doing quite well, and they don't seem to mind us around, and they don't mind anything else around, so they're very happy with where they're at.
3: I mean, there have only been 10,000 generations of Homo sapiens. These have had hundreds of billions of generations. I would venture to say that if catastrophe were really to strike this planet, that maybe the only things to survive would be stuff like the gastrotrigs.
0: Oh, I think so. And I think that would be a good thing because they're beautiful little animals and they're extremely diverse and they just make a great contribution to the planet.
3: Do you have a picture of one on your wall?
0: I have several pictures.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, Rick Hochberg, thank you so much for talking to me about the gastro trick.
0: Well, it's been a pleasure.
2: Rick Hochberg thinks small and works fast as a biologist at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell, studying gastrotricks. And you can find
3: a picture of a gastrotrick on our blog. You know, Molly, this whole business about lifetimes actually has some application to the question of uh, whether we'll ever meet E.T. You mean in the
2: search for life elsewhere in the universe?
3: Yeah. Will we ever have physical contact? I mean, you know, close encounter of the third kind.
2: You mean because if the only life out there were gastrotricks, not only would they probably not build radio telescopes... But they would not stick around for very long, so we'd never
3: get to meet them. That's the point. They couldn't make long rocket rides. Our rockets take 100,000 years to get to the stars, and we consider that too long. But if there were some critter out there that had a lifetime of a million years, well, then maybe they'd take a rocket ride of 100,000 years.
2: Meanwhile, I know that you know that we know that time flies like an arrow and that fruit flies like a banana, but gastrotrix, they like
6: fruit punch. Hi, pretty swinging scene they have here. The rotting fruit punch is nicely congealed. Yeah, these lake parties are a real blast. I don't see any other gastro
3: tricks, though. No, they don't stick around for long. Personally, I'm glad to be free of my lab. They were breeding us like flies. But you are a fly. A fruit fly. I'm into genetic research not hovering around piles of garbage.
6: Sure glad I opted for this over a movie tonight. Enjoy murder mysteries, but I might have died without knowing who did it. That's why I stick with previews. I'm hoping to meet somebody special at this party. Have any advice? Well, don't waste time on small talk. Just ask this dragonfly. You guys having a good time here? Every second counts. (laughs) Hey, old timer. Just celebrated my third week at this place and party's only begun. Here comes a cute mayfly. Introduce me. Whoa, whoa, that's Midge. Cute one like that, she'll break your heart.
2: Hi, guys. Know where I can score some decaying vegetation
6: around here? Hi, I'm a gastrotric, and even though we're different species, I think that... So much for that. She dropped like the fly she is. Was. What happened? Are you serious? After a long larval period, adult mayflies live for 30 minutes to a day. But boy, does some of them live. You know what I'm saying? Do ya? <laughs> Here's another. What a looker.
2: Hi, hot stuff. Do you...
3: I'm telling you, don't get involved with
6: those one-day wonders. How about one of her friends there? Call me! Yeah, the one-minute stands of fun, but it's a whole world of regret the next minute. Here, here. Besides, aren't gastro hermaphrodites? I mean, you don't need a date. You are your date. Well, it's been two days. Maybe it's a midlife crisis. I just don't feel I'm my type. Drink some more of that punch and you'll look a lot better to yourself. Ooh, check out the big blue compound eyes on that horsefly. See ya. Give me a break. That horsefly is barely two days
3: old. Hey, why don't you go for someone your own age? Yes, a new reason to heed the admonition carpe diem. What's the Latin for minute, Molly? Carpa minutis. Carpa minutis.
2: (laughs) That's the short of it. Now for the long of it.
3: Scientists at the Long Now Foundation think long-term, really long-term. They're working on a clock that will go on ticking for your lifetime, your children's lifetime, their children's, and their children's, well, for about as long into the future as humans have wielded tools and planted crops. Which is
2: 10,000 years The Long Now engineers have already made a prototype of this clock. It's in the Science Museum of London, but now they're scaling up and building the real thing in the desert of Texas.
3: My gosh, even the best cars don't last anything like 10,000 years. The pyramids haven't lasted that long. So why build a clock that will keep on ticking long, long, long after you're gone? Why, Alexander Rose of the Long Now Foundation? Why?
1: Is this a project to ensure your immortality? No, it's not really a project on personal immortality, but it is a project to change the way people think about time. And in fact, we're watching civilization set itself up for a lot of failures that will only be solved if you can take the long term seriously. So climate change has been a slow building problem. That's not going to be solved in four years, and neither is hunger, neither is old-growth redwoods. So the idea is to at least give one inspirational project on this scale so that other people may be looking at some of those problems. will go, well, we'll be conservative and just take uh, one century to solve this problem.
3: Well, tell me, I have a pretty good watch uh, that I spent a fair amount of money on, and it's given me no trouble despite the lack of any maintenance whatsoever. Uh, How about clocks that are built today? How long could you expect them to to last? What goes wrong with a clock?
1: Well, interestingly, one of the the main problems with clocks today, especially mechanical ones such as we're building, is the tick. The tick is the thing that actually destroys clocks. And that auditory bit that you hear is actually one of the gears beating up against the oscillator, the pendulum, if you will. And that sound is the clock kind of slowly destroying itself by beating up against another part of itself. So we try and engineer to have the lightest tick possible. You've describe some of
3: the strategies that have been used historically to build something that has real lasting power. <laughs> I mean, anti-rust coatings, I don't know what they are. Uh, obviously, building something big makes it uh, more likely to last for a long time. I and mean, the pyramids being an obvious example. What, what sorts of approaches can guarantee a long life for a mechanical device?
1: Well, I think one of the most critical ones just in the pure mechanics of what we're doing also goes to material science. And that is that when you put two different types of metals together, they corrode. And you'd see this if you put a penny, for instance, on the bottom of your aluminum boat in salt water. You'll watch that penny basically corrode right through the bottom of that aluminum boat in literally months. So that's a type of corrosion called galvanic corrosion. And we solve that by separating our metals with special bearings that are made out of all ceramic materials. So there's no metal-to-metal contact in the parts that have to rotate.
3: Having been to some of the monuments of Europe and, for that matter, even Egypt, uh, it seems to me that the really dangerous period for anything that you construct in terms of its long-term survival are the first, I don't know, fifty, hundred, 100, couple of hundred years because, uh, you know, the pyramids were looted very quickly. Uh, the Eiffel Tower, 1880s, right? Uh, they they tried to tear it down almost immediately. But at some point, after one generation or two, they've sort of forgotten what it was originally built for. Now they come to view it as something that's part of their heritage, and now they protect it, like the Colosseum in Rome. I mean, it, it, does that play here?
1: Yeah. So one of the most difficult parts of building an object that's going to last a long time is that kind of chasm of unfashionability. And this idea that one generation after the people that construct it, it becomes unfashionable. And this is long before it becomes a cultural artifact, effectively. And so we saw that problem with the Eiffel Tower where it fell out of fashion. And we saw that problem here in the San Francisco Bay Area with the Victorian homes that were torn down to build these kind of 60s monstrosities. And so how you solve that crossing over that chasm, there's many strategies that have been used through history successfully. One is the way that they build cathedrals, for instance, where they take 600 years to build it. So by the time it's done, it's already a valuable antique. Uh, Where's this clock going to be? Is it going to be, you know, downtown New York? The full-size monument scale version is going to be at a site in West Texas, pretty close to Carlsbad, New Mexico, actually, right on the border in a limestone mountain. And about how big is this thing? This is not pocket watch size, I assume. No, we're building at monument scale, an architectural scale, where you actually walk through the workings of the clock. So the underground excavation that we're building may be about 500 feet deep. So underground,
3: okay, and I assume that you do that... Uh, for the same reason that the Valley of the Kings was underground, that it's protected.
1: Right. We've in looking at sites around the world throughout history, the things that last on this timescale, unless you get as massive as the pyramids, have to be underground. And so, especially something that's going to be a machine. And when this thing is done, and I go to visit it,
3: uh, because after all, it sounds very intriguing. I go visit this thing, I'm going to see some some clock that's, uh, what, a couple of stories high? What will I see, and what will it do? Will I even see it move? Or, do, you know, if it's keeping time for 10,000 years, maybe it doesn't move very fast.
1: Well, when you arrive, it'll be a kind of a whole-day adventure. You'll have to hike up from the valley up a long trail, and then you'll enter into an underground cave, basically, that's kind of rough-hewn. And as you go further and further into it, it becomes more and more finely-hewn. And at some point, you'll have to actually turn on your flashlights, And you'll go through these kind of set of doors that operate kind of as an airlock to help keep dust out of the clock. And then you'll arrive at the bottom of a deep vertical shaft and that has a spiral staircase. And if you look up, you'll see parts of the mechanics of the clock. And you'll start walking up the spiral staircase for hundreds of vertical feet. And you'll pass through the mechanics of the clock that aren't actually moving at that time. And and you'll be able to wind parts of it. And you may wonder why you're winding it, if it's even still working. And it won't be until you get to the final chamber where you'll see the clock ticking, and you'll see the time from the people who were last visited the clock. And you'll have to wind the dials of the clock to update them. The clock always knows what time it is, but in order for it to show you that time, you have to wind it.
3: Uh, is this employed to power the clock?
1: Well, the clock, knowing what time it is, that what keeps the pendulum ticking is powered by the temperature difference from day to night. So that's kept all by itself. But it won't show you unless you give it some energy. And it's an engineering benefit because pulling that much power out of a thermal difference engine from the sun would actually be very difficult to power all the dials and chimes and things like that. But it's also a a social ploy in that people get to own that moment that they have with the clock. The way you describe it, it sounds very much like
3: a Disney attraction. I mean, is, is that because you want people to enjoy the clock? Or is it because by making it a Disney attraction, it'll be maintained and preserved?
1: Well, I hope the lines aren't as long as a Disney attraction. But the <laughs> point of the clock is to get people to take the longer term more seriously. So in a sense, it is a type of theater project or a ride, however you want to put it. But the idea is to capture imagination. So if we if we don't make it intriguing enough, it fails at its job. So uh, half of our work is in engineering the material science and the real engineering of how to make it work, and the other half is is how to engineer an experience that is really compelling.
3: Am I going to be able to see this in my lifetime?
1: I certainly hope so.
3: Alexander Rose, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Thank you.
2: Time keeps on ticking, ticking, ticking for Alexander Rose of the Long Now Foundation.
3: Up next, our love-hate relationship with the long-lived polymers that keep our mountain spring water and lemon blueberry snack cakes fresh. Our reactions are drastic when it comes to plastic. It's no expiration date on Big Picture Science. Talking no expiration date on Big Picture Science.
2: There's one modern invention we use to keep things from expiring that has one of the longest shelf lives itself. I want to say one word to you, just one word.
3: Plastic, a Toxic Love Story, is reporter Susan Frankel's book about our complicated relationship with the hydrocarbons that are here to stay.
7: Susan, I set two objects there on your desk. What do you have there? Well, on the one hand, I have a small bottle of ground turmeric made of plastic with a plastic lid, and then here I have your ubiquitous everyday plastic shopping bag. Are they made out of the same kinds of plastic? No, they're not. The spice bottle is made out of polypropylene. It says on the bottom, it's, it's a polypropylene which has a number five associated with it. And the bag is made out of high density polyethylene. What is the difference? Well, they are two different kinds of plastics, and like I often like to say, plastics can be as different from each other as glasses from paper. I'll start with what they have in common. They're both polymers, so they're both these very long, gigantic, enormous molecules made up of sort of repeating units of smaller molecules and atoms, and they both probably came from natural gas, which is the source of most plastics in this country. But beyond that, then, they were kind of constructed in different ways, using different starting ingredients and probably contained different kinds of additives that result in them having a very different feel and texture. Now,
2: the book that you have is Plastic, and the subtitle is A Toxic Love Story. What is
7: our love affair with plastics, and why is it toxic? Well, that title kind of came at the end of the book and it came because I tell the story of plastic over the last 150 years really and when I looked at it I realized I was describing the arc of a love affair gone bad plastics when they first came into being and when they first started really becoming a significant part of people's lives were an amazing material cellophane one of the early plastics People fell in love with cellophane, so much so that in the 1940s it was considered one of the most beautiful words in the English language, after mother and memory of all things. And you can imagine why it was so enchanting to people, this transparent material that wasn't breakable like glass that allowed you to see if your bread was fresh, for instance. You can mold it to anything. You could mold it to anything. You could make it for anything. Designers were utterly enthralled because here was this family of materials that allowed them to do anything with them. And it did bring a kind of unprecedented um, sort of abundance into our lives. And then now, of course, we're looking at it, and it tends to connote some much more serious concerns, uh, such as the environmental issues of this material that doesn't break down these plastic plastic bags,
2: bags.
7: or um, health considerations from the chemicals that are used in plastics and can leach out.
2: In fact, you have a chapter in your book, humans are a little plastic now. We're all carrying little bits of plastic chemicals in our bodies?
7: We are all carrying plastic chemicals in our bodies. We are carrying a lot of synthetic chemicals in our bodies. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, I think now tests for over 200 trace levels of chemicals in people's bodies. We are all a little bit plastic. We're all a little bit bactericides, a little bit solvents. There's a laundry list of chemicals that we all carry. Plastics in some ways are sort of uh, delivery vehicles for some of these chemicals because they are not necessarily completely integrated into the polymer matrix of the plastic. And those chemicals can leach out under certain conditions. Now, I listened to a talk that you gave at a bookstore recently. And during
2: the question period, a man raised his hand and he said he was from Earth First, which is the Radical Environmental Advocacy Group. And he said that his stance as being a member of this group was no compromise where the environment was concerned. And that also meant plastics. Um, You need to get rid of all of them and put the people who run the companies who create these chemicals in
7: jail. How did you respond to him? Do you remember? I don't remember exactly what I said, but my basic feeling is plastics, we, we forget the fact that these are great materials and that it is an incredible accomplishment that we have gotten so good at being able to manipulate molecules to create materials that do what we need them to do and can be what we need them to be. So this feeling of let's just get rid of all the plastics, plastics are evil, is is not the position that you're taking. No, absolutely not. I think, in fact, that kind of disdain that we often feel for plastics gets in our way of being able to see clearly when it makes sense to use them and when it doesn't. My feeling is that we use plastics far too often in foolish and short-sighted ways. So half of all plastic now gets put into single-use applications, like this shopping bag sitting next to me. That's an incredible waste of resources, aside from all of the pollution problems associated with it. It's just an insane waste of resources.
2: And what's the, what's a
7: smart use of plastic? In what ways can it be the most valuable? I think, you know, in medicine, you couldn't have modern medicine without plastic, and that's important and that's valuable. I think if we can close the loop on packaging, it's important. I mean, much as we hate packaging, you're not going to get lettuce. As long as we live in a sort of globalized food economy, you're not going to get strawberries from, from Chile or lettuce from Central Valley of California to New York without good plastic packaging, but it ought to be plastic packaging that gets recycled. Of
2: course, someone could argue that we shouldn't be transporting those foods halfway around the world, but that's a separate argument is what I'm hearing.
7: No argument with that. I mean, ultimately, I think when you start looking at plastic, it actually does force you to sort of think about the broader issues about the way that we live. But I think, you know, the world's population is approaching 7 billion people and we are not going to house and clothe and heal and transport ourselves solely on the materials of the natural world.
2: Let's say we did that with the blueberries that I find in the store that come from Chile. Let's say they were transported without any plastics whatsoever. What would that journey be
7: like for that food? (laughs) You would end up with a kind of soup of blueberries at the end. You really couldn't do it without (laughs) plastic. So the bigger issue there is, you know, should we be transporting blueberries from Chile? And probably the answer is no.
2: You mentioned modern hospitals, and it's my understanding that modern hospitals would grind to a halt if you took away plastics. Can you give me an idea
7: why that is, just how plastics are used in hospitals? Plastics are used in everything from the most mundane to the sort of most miraculous aspects of medicine. So they are things like the bedpans patients use, the Band-Aids that patients are given to kind of the casing for high-tech imaging device the the computer chips that make imaging devices possible surgical tools are made out of plastic i was in a hospital long, not long ago because my mother broke her hip and that hip that went in her was partly plastic how long does it take for plastic to biodegrade Well, plastic doesn't biodegrade. How long does it take for it to degrade (laughs) and go away? (laughs) It, It never really goes away. In a practical sense, every piece of plastic, unless it's been incinerated or recycled, every piece of plastic produced is with us still in some form or another. What it does do is it breaks up. It doesn't break down. So instead of being able to be digested by microbes, it fragments and fractures under the force of UV rays and... You know, just if it gets in the ocean under the force of wind and waves or, but, you know, those get into smaller and smaller and smaller polymer bits. How long does it take? Nobody really knows for sure, and it can vary depending on the plastic. But we're talking a timeline of decades, um, if not centuries, for many of the plastics. Now, I understand that the production of plastic will quadruple in the coming years in the developing world. Well, that figure about plastics quadrupling in use is based on projections that the biggest consumption and demand right now is probably coming from developing countries. And on the one hand, you know, that's great. You want people to enjoy the kind of benefits that we've enjoyed in the first world. On the other hand, when what's being exported is this kind of throwaway mentality, that's a big problem. You know, ironically, we've already seen things like with the plastic bags, a lot of the momentum for dealing with plastic bags started in places like India, where the bags weren't simply just unsightly litter, but they were literally blocking storm drains and worsening monsoons. So the very first bag ban came from Mumbai for that very reason. My hope is that as the, the rest of the world catches on to plastics production, it can be used for good, not evil. <laughs> You know, to put it in kind of really baldly, and that, you know, people can take advantage of things like plastic buckets, which are a phenomenal advantage for a society where people are literally walking to pick up their water from the river. To be able to carry it back in a plastic bucket instead of a heavy clay jar is fantastic.
2: Susan, thank you very much for talking with us. It was a
7: pleasure to be here.
3: Susan Frankel is the author of Plastic, A Toxic Love Story. Well, Molly, if you want to keep something around, you wrap it in plastic. I mean, the food disintegrates before the wrapping does.
2: Although some foods do manage to keep, Seth. I mean, here we are in the office kitchen again, which I'm feeling much more relaxed about ever since we got rid of those hairy spare ribs.
3: I'm going to miss them. No, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs)
2: If you look here, in this drawer here, we have jars of peanut butter. I mean, this peanut butter has been here for a really long time.
3: Well, also, look at these granola bars up here stacked up. I think they're from the, you know, the first granola ever made. And then there's this bottle of honey. I mean, that's really ancient. You know, these things just don't get swapped out very often.
2: (laughs) See if Martin knows why this stuff lasts. You said you're going to call him again, right?
3: Yeah. Let's find out why this honey has so much staying power. I'll give him a call. Hello, this is Martin Bucknavich. Hello, Martin. Sorry to bother you again. No worries at all. Martin, why do some foods such as, well, peanut butter you mentioned, granola bars, I mean, these things just last and last without refrigeration. What is it about them that protects them?
4: Really, when we talk about peanut butter or we talk about granola bars, there it's the lack of moisture. There's no moisture there that's available for bacteria or for mold to grow. Even if we think about bread, I mean, bread will last for a long time outside of the shelf. Eventually, it starts to mold, but we can increase the rate of deterioration of that bread if it does get overly moist. That will open the door for mold to grow on it.
3: What what about honey?
4: There's moisture there, but it's bound up. And because it's bound up by the sugar molecules itself, it isn't available for bacteria or for mold to grow on it. So that product can last for a very, very long time.
3: In the past, before refrigeration became so commonplace, people would salt food items or they would smoke them, and then they could be stored without refrigeration.
4: One of the primary things there is the reduction of moisture, so the addition of salt or the drying through the smoking process does reduce the water activity. Now, in terms of smoke, you're also adding a natural preservative. There are certain chemical substances within that smoke that do add an additional barrier to microbial spoilage.
3: Well, finally, Martin, I mean, if you were asked to create meals that could last indefinitely, say food that we could pack away and take on a trip to Mars, what would you choose?
4: The container is very, very important in terms of products lasting for a long time. I much prefer fresh foods than packaged food. You know, nothing better than having a nice apple fresh off the tree. But not to say that packaged foods aren't bad. What we call aseptic packaging, that, that's available. We see that in a lot of juices and shelf-stable milk products. Those types of packages are designed to last for a long period of time. Another one that's been around for 100 years or so now is canned food. Can is a great item for maintaining the shelf life of a product. It's not permeable to oxygen or to moisture. And cans, although over time the product will start to deteriorate in the can, you'll lose some texture. Those types of containers can last a long time.
3: I can just picture the astronauts now on their way to yeah. Mars opening up that 400th tin of beef. Yeah. They talk about NASA's yeah. can-do attitude.
4: Or that aseptic package or the little packages like they have for the juice drinks that the kids have. You know, are they oh, my gosh, what is it, pureed beef? <laughs>
3: well, thanks very much for your patience, Martin, in taking two of my phone calls today and answering our questions. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye now.
2: Well, Seth, I feel like I should stay away from peanut butter that's been sitting in a drawer for months and months, but I love peanut butter.
3: I think your dentist loves that you love peanut butter.
2: (laughs) Our appreciation to Martin Bucknavage from Penn State for his wisdom, and that's it for our show. Thanks to our staff. They're always fresh producer Gary Niederhoff, production assistant Barbara Vance, assistant producer Keith Rosendahl, and volunteer Jay Weiler.
3: Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where our show is produced. And thanks also to our listeners.
2: You can find Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website.
3: If you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air radio, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program.